Hi, I'm Kes Sotterleaf, and welcome to Margins and Murmurations, the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. As I don't have social media, this is the best way for people to find out about me. And if you'd like to know more about my work, you can check out otterleaf.com. Otter, like the animal, L-I-E-F-F-E. During my first book tours back in 2017 and 2018, I got to work with groups like Action for Trans Health and LGBT Books to Prisoners. And along the way, I met some incredible people like Felix. They are part of the team running Books Beyond Bars UK. And in this conversation, we discuss what solidarity with queer and trans prisoners can look like, how to keep academia grounded in activism, and how to get queer politics back on track. Felix is a founding member and core volunteer at Books Beyond Bars. Alongside this, they are a research associate, book nerd, and cat parent living in Manchester, dreaming of a better world than the one we live in. Books Beyond Bars UK is a collective of volunteers who send books and other educational materials free of charge to incarcerated LGBTQIA people across the UK. Access to reading materials in prison is often limited, and within this, access to books and resources covering different aspects of LGBTQIA experience can be almost non-existent. Books Beyond Bars aims to support people in accessing resources to understand and explore their own identities, while also building a sense of connection with queer and trans communities on the outside. Um, Yeah, well, let's start with the classic question of um, where are you today and what uh, more than humans are around you? Do you have any cute animals, plants, others in your life at the moment? Um, I love this. I love this question. Um, So I'm in Manchester in the northwest of England, just in my house today. Um, So in the house, I have um, Naya, my cat. Um, who about 10 now, I've had her for 10 years, or she's lived in wow. 10 years. And um, some house plants, like who are varying degrees of happy, <laughs> not great <laughs> at, at that. Um, and then around, I feel like Manchester's pretty good for, um, you see like a decent amount of, of green, I think, in most of the like not so much in the centre, but in most of the like residential areas, there's at least a few trees and mm. things. And on our back, uh, the fence at the back of my house, there's like a really old ivy, like all the way down, um, really kind of grown into the fence. And all all spring and summer, we had like um, one or two blackbirds that seem to be there all the time, eating the berries and things like that. And they got mm. a nest that they'd built inside um, maybe around sort of June time, which was very cool. Um, and then outside of babies? that, I, sorry, did you see some little blackbird babies? Uh, we caught a glimpse of one, was but we didn't want to approach because I think it spotted us, and, and it was not flying, but kind of running around on the ground, looking a bit, a bit panicked. Um, and the parents were nearby, I guess. I guess coming back and forth to feed it. So we were like, leave that alone. Don't want to scare anybody. Um, so hopefully that one made it off, and but that's what made us look because we spotted the spotted the chick and then went and searched and found this nest completely hidden, and um, that somehow the cat hadn't got to either. Um, and then outside of that, I guess it's mainly the kinds of animals that you see more often in cities. So 
fair amount of squirrels, um, yeah. lots of magpies, few crows, love crows, mm. and um, lots and lots of pigeons. Oh, and foxes? Yeah. Kind of Manchester has foxes. There are some. I've still not seen one. Um, mm. I've lived here a long time, but I know other people have seen urban foxes coming about. Mm. Um, so they are, they are, yeah. Not visible, really. mm, gorgeous. Um, yeah, so Books Beyond Bars, it's a project that's obviously really close to my heart and you're doing just, yeah, I'm just so impressed constantly by all the incredible work you're doing um, as the team. And I was, yeah, wondering like how that kind of work, I remember some of the process at the beginning of the project, but like how did it kind of, how did you get involved in in that particular kind of, work um particularly yeah like solidarity with incarcerated lgbtqia people and like where did where, where was your personal connection with that work yeah um i mean this will probably kind of cross over at some point with like us getting to know each other which will be quite nice so we can kind of touch on that as well mm. um but pre um getting to know each other and and then the kind of origin of books beyond bars specifically um i think that in around sort of like my mid twenties, probably um, I was trying to get more involved in doing um, community-based work or just get involved with things a bit more. Um, and at the time, the the main project that I got involved with was like a, uh, was Action for Trans Health, which at the time was like well, it was trans healthcare focused name kind of suggests, and they. You know, did various different things. Um, one of which was running a, a kind of central solidarity fund. That's that was what it set up to do originally, and then it kind of branched out. Um, and within the solidarity fund, there was kind of priority access for, um, I mean, various different groups. But among them were that people who were incarcerated could get um, grants without needing to wait for like a funding round. To happen so there's kind of automatic um access so after a, there was a point at which i uh, kind of built up um correspondence by post with um a small number of um, mainly trans women at the time who were basically supporting them to access that fund um and then kind of continuing male correspondence as well at the same time i think yeah. um which that was my first, uh, I mean, as an adult, and this speaks, I guess, to a lot of um, my own kind of background and privileges and stuff, but I hadn't had any um, kind of real, you know, direct contact with um, prisons and the impact of them. So from, for most of my adult life until that point, it had been more, um, it had been, um, kind of abstract in a way, because mm. it, it was kind of, you know, removed, placed at a remove from um, from my life. Um, and so through that, I think, inevitably, when you're interacting with people and getting to know people on a human level, and then it becomes a lot more concrete, like a lot more concrete, and what it did for me became a lot more concrete and real to me very quickly, um, and then, uh, and then I think that led that ended up going back and forth between um, learning a lot more 
and engaging a lot more with um, critical ideas and work that other people were doing around around prisons and around abolition specifically. So there was kind of a period of um, developing a lot in my thinking and understanding around what prisons are and how they function. Um, and then, and through through doing that kind of community work, I think that was how um, you and I got to know each other through mm. some kind of collaborations and um, and kind of book events that were going on at the time. Right. And then out of that was how um, I knew you at the point that you were running a fundraiser with um, a project in the US that sends books to um, queer and trans people in prison over there, LGBT books to prisoners. Um, and then I think out of that fundraiser just kind of started conversations um, around what exists in the UK, which at the time was uh, bent bars primarily, who still exist, um, and now it's kind of us and them in terms of projects where the main focus is um, LGBTQ plus um, people. Uh, and then just kind of figuring out a way to um, see if we could make it happen. And then we did, which is still kind of incredible. <laughs> but it's still going. It feels like a long time ago, right? I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, these memories of like, yeah, meeting. And uh, yeah, I think I was on a book tour. It was like maybe the first time I'd been on tour in 2017 or something. Oof. The 2018, I don't know, one of those. Um, yeah, it all feels like yeah, ancient I can't history. Place it now either. Yeah, yeah, really, like a long, um, a long kind of path, maybe. Hmm. And where is Books Beyond Bars UK now? Like, what? What does like a day? A daily routine look like what how many um yeah responses or like um letters and things do you get each week like what is it what's it looking like yeah um so in terms of like the number of letters that come through week to week it, it kind of varies quite a bit i guess in terms of how we run it at the moment um because we're not we're not uh a charity kind of technically, which is a deliberate decision. So it's set up as, as a, a kind of um, a limited company, but kind of explicitly you know, making no profits. Um, so all it's kind of runs on um, donations and fundraising that we, any fundraising that we can do. And then all of that goes to um, mainly postage and then also um, buying books that we need a lot more like dictionaries um, can. Um, and because it's it's volunteer run at the moment, um, it's it's the core work gets done in kind of one working day in the week. There will be other bits and pieces that we do like through the rest of the week, like staying on top of emails and doing social media pieces and things like that. But in terms of doing parcels and letters. Um, that tends to tend to kind of try and power through that on the one working day. Um, I'd say like definitely over, I mean, it's hard to say what it would have been like, like anything, I suppose, it's hard to say what it would have been like without um, COVID happening in 2020 or landing in the UK in 2020. 
um, about a year after we'd started, because then that just it was a there was a huge increase at that point, obviously, because there was you know, people were on lockdown for kind of 23, 23 and a half hours a day. So there was just a much, the need was, it's high anyway, but it was suddenly kind of hugely increased. Um, and then it, it kind of fluctuates. This year we've we've been getting a lot more new letters and new order forms from people. Um, and in terms of averages, I think last year we sent out about maybe just over two and two and a half thousand books. And we're kind of on track to be somewhere Whoa. between two and a half thousand and three thousand this year. Mm. Um, so in terms of books, that's about where it stands. And we also do a print newsletter um, for people inside. And the mailing list for that is currently at about 350, 360 people. Right. Um, so that's kind of about the 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 average of, of what we send maybe it's difficult to work out what that looks like enough to keep you really really busy i guess yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> um just just about that we can like just about keep up with it but yeah um yeah definitely mm. definitely busy so amazing um I'm actually going to like change the order of our questions before we move on to talking about your phd i'm curious like what can people do um, to support Books Beyond Bars? If people are listening and being like, oh my God, this sounds like really important work, which it is. Um, yeah, how, what kind of support is useful? Is support useful? Um, I'm curious. So, I mean, there's in terms of like, people can kind of stay up to date with um, what we're doing or find out about what we're up to on um, there's like the obvious social media go-tos and that kind of thing. Um, so we're most active on Instagram and Twitter for those. Um, and I'll send the handles and things so those can be in, <laughs> in the show notes if people want to mm-hmm. um, them up. But also just searching for us on there should, should bring us up. Um, and that's kind of like updates on um, donations if we're doing any call-outs for specific books or specific topics or anything like that mm-hmm. and people find out there or sharing um actions from other groups and, you know sign signposting sign posting different things that you might want to get involved in as well um in terms of supporting um so at the moment we're we're trying to build volunteer capacity but a lot of that's very local because most of the work most of the core work that we do has to be um, in person, so there's not a great deal. We do we get a lot of emails asking about volunteering from a distance, which is lovely. Obviously, very really appreciated. But there's not a whole lot that people can really get involved in um, if they don't live nearby. Just for us, um, so if people want to support Books Beyond Bars specifically, um, and they're kind of you know at a at a distance, um, then the best things are are. Um, Either, well, for people who are able to um, set, like setting up like a monthly donation is very helpful. Um, we've been like doing quite a lot on that this year of building up like a monthly income base, just because it makes it means that we can be confident about covering like a baseline postage costs and stuff, right. and also do some 
planning as well, hopefully, which uh, that's another thing that I think through through the pandemic, um, A, because, you know, we couldn't really, you know, we couldn't go anywhere. Obviously, like very few people could. Um, but also but we were kind of just trying to keep up with what was coming in and try to be mm. sending out as much as, as possible. So I, I, at the moment, it's we're kind of trying to spend a bit more time thinking about um, how we want to, you know, are there, are there um, things that we could be doing or that we could be doing better, but there just hasn't been that much time or capacity to you know, evaluate and think about ways of working, you know, is there other things that we could change or do slightly differently? Um, are there ways that we could be being, you know, better linked up with other groups? And kind of mm. So at the moment, we're kind of trying to do um, to do that. Um, so monthly donations help to kind of just keep things taking over, obviously, and um, uh, and book drives as well for, for book donations, which we're kind of working at the moment on like a guide of how people can do that. Um, but outside of that, I guess, well, because we already signpost or try to to work collaboratively with and signpost people to groups doing other things. So whether that's other, um, you know, um, not necessarily book projects, but sometimes book projects, but um, support projects that are focused on um, other groups, so one specific kind of um, intersections or um, marginalized kind of um, aspects of experience um, or campaigning groups and you know, groups that are doing a lot more kind of um, campaigns and direct action and um, and organizing um, in that way um, so I think we would always encourage people as well to look at what's going on locally if they're having the feeling of like I need to do something like I want to mm. do something which I relate to a lot, I, I think like in, at the point, you know, going back to the kind of origin story, um, at the point at which I started to get involved in things was this kind of panicky, almost kind of panicky feeling of like, I need to do, like I need to do something. Right. Um, and then working out who's doing things and just, and, lit, and you know, essentially basically being like, what, what is, what are the things, the jobs that like, um, you have to do, and you, it would be easy to to delegate to another person because I'm not, you know, I've not been doing this for ages, so I I, I don't want to kind of barge in and be trying to do more than I can actually do. But like, are there, you know, are there delegatable tasks that just you know, um, asking about those things um, and getting involved with things like. Um, like, so groups that are, I feel like there's more and more of them popping up at the moment as well. So um, like cop watch groups or um, anti-raids groups um, for people who live in um, in kind of bigger cities. But also for, if there isn't anything locally, then looking to projects where it isn't as, you know, locally, lo you know, as in-person centric as we are. So people can sign up to be, um, pen pals with pen bars from you know, lots of mm. don't necessarily okay. live where they operate. So I, I, I guess those would be the places that I would direct depending on on what their what the feeling is that they're having <laughs> about right. you know supporting things and wanting to get involved. So, um, 
Yeah, and on that, I'm curious how, from your perspective, how Books Beyond Bars fits and like the work that you're doing in the network. Um, I wonder how that fits in with, for example, queer organizing, trans organizing, like, um, yeah, other um, scenes, because my sense often with things like prisoner solidarity and support is that it's just not as sexy as um, other things that people might be organizing. It doesn't seem as interesting on Instagram. It's like a lot of hard work that nobody really uh, perceives or recognizes. And I'm curious, like, yeah, how you perceive that and how other pe other people in other scenes are like where where does it fit in how are people are people really supportive are they supportive mm. for five minutes but it isn't very sexy on their instagram i'm, I'm kind of curious uh, i mean that's really interesting i feel like it's going to go off in a few different directions um Good. but i <laughs> but the first thing it's making me think of is is going back to the earlier question of kind of what you know how did i how did i gravitate towards what's doing towards doing more of this kind of work um, and part of that I, I think was doing you know in this period of time when I was um, just looking and looking into and reading and engaging with lots of ideas and politics that um, I think you know prior to that my my kind of politics had maybe it probably been more on like a liberal side and very very not very developed um analysis about about power how power works um and so and so i was as i was learning more about that becoming um more and more frustrated by the fact because i was reading these things that were talking about how uh then kind of mainstream um lgbtq organizations that kind of are the most well resourced and have the most funds the most power that the the things that they advocate for um in terms of legislation and and you know and in the uk as well this kind of really huge emphasis on hate crime reporting like hate crime, hate crime is going to save us all um and becoming more critical of that and then just becoming really frustrated that that the the most prominent kind of priorities were so narrow and so far away from from changing the things that 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 increasingly I was like those these are the things that really need to be be urgently changed mm -hmm. um so I think in those settings um it's definitely still extremely marginal because I, I I guess politically it's something that people don't really want to touch necessarily because it it you know I think from a from a more you know a really large scale um, charity perspective um it's you know it's bad for PR potentially I think people force they you know see it that way as something that makes you vulnerable to being um basically it it it's damaging to the kind of um image of like lgbtq life that they are wanting mm. to, um to communicate as a as a way of being like look we're so good um give us rights kind of thing right respectability politics and 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like certain exactly. kind of class of queers who are like fallen from grace, and the only thing that's wrong with them is their queerness. And if they can just fix that and change a few laws, then everything will be fine. And yeah, indeed, other classes of queers are just not that interesting, or something, or yeah, kind of expose problems with capitalism and the prison industrial complex. Yeah, well, and the demands are bigger and mm. um, and more transformative and more um disruptive so we you know when we try to because we get requests from people when they're coming up to release for information about what kinds of resources you know what what's what is going to be available in the area where they're going to be living um and it's often quite difficult to to get something as simple as like a, a named person at a you know at a comparatively much more well-resourced organization that we can put them in touch with, not even to do anything, but to say, can they just email you uh, by name? Can they maybe call? Um, but you know, we're not promising like this person is going to go with you to things. But you know, it's not it's not even a, that they would be being asked to, to do anything particularly, just to right. be a point of contact. But that's very difficult to find. Um, so on that side of things, it's uh, I think I think it depends on the space. So in in uh, trans spaces, I've tended to find that there's much more familiarity, at least familiarity with the idea mm, of abolition. Mm. Um, I know, and I, that'll vary, you know, from from place to place. So across like trans focused events in the UK, um, there is variation between the politics of of different different events, and some are. Uh, some I think would be much more um, mm, unsure, whereas whereas you know other events will go and the the response is really enthusiastic, which obviously is, is really lovely. I'm not sure that that would be the case at a mainstream kind of full um, LGBTQ umbrella, particularly because of the the which lots of people have talked about. You know, um, for years now, but the the influence of um, of kind of corporate sponsorship and um, and literal police involvement and um, and prison and probation service involvement. I've definitely mm -hmm. seen a, um, people walking with a banner in a particularly like dystopic pride parade. <laughs> um, so you know, I think that the I think that the response then would be much more mixed. I would imagine that. Um, because there is so much investment in the idea of uh, hate crime as a route to safety, it's kind of the only mm -hmm. thing that's offered. Um, that if that that it, I think for some people, if they have a sense of that being taken away, then I think that their reaction to us would maybe be quite negative. I think they would right. maybe react to us as though we were saying like. I want these things to happen to you <laughs> rather than saying like, no, I want, I want actual things to happen that will actually reduce the, like the danger to people and actually address, address that harm effectively when it does happen. Um, so, um, yeah, so within, within communities, obviously it's different depending on where you are. I would say that there's definitely more, Solidarities that happen um, across 
across different organizing priorities perhaps. So obviously with other groups that are doing um, kind of direct support work with people in prison or are organizing around abolition. There's, and, and, and actually I've tended to find that those spaces are much more attentive to and paying a lot more attention to all of the intersections as well. So it tends to be mm. um, a much better, uh, you know, a, a, it's more likely that there'll be an assumed investment in, um, in as a, a, like as a minimum, an investment in anti-racism and a familiarity with, um, you know, basic uh, language stuff and uh, that can make things more accessible for trans people and, and not assuming, you know, that I've, that I've found to be um, be the case in those spaces, which which has also been very, that's been heartening. I think at, at the same time as I've felt increasingly over time, you know, very alienated and angry and um, like at the, the parade that I mentioned earlier, like I think the feeling that I had afterwards and I then tried to communicate to people was that ambivalent. It was like a genuine like feeling really heartbroken because of seeing it in a way that I wouldn't have, you know, a few years before, but really seeing it as this incredible, um, like rejection of of huge parts of the community in favor of um, of being seen to be aligned with um, powerful institutions. I, I was I, like, was very genuinely like upset in a thing in a way that I think other people found um, some of my some of my friends and other people found um, confusing or surprising. Mm. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, meeting more more people through through. Um, abolition in various different forms, you know, you lots of different things, um, but feeling much more, maybe genuine pride in those situations um, than, than pride pride has ever made me feel maybe. <laughs> so accessing, you know. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, like being like, this is genuine, you know, this is what it, um, this is what that actually means, um, which obviously I'm very grateful for. I feel like I've wandered maybe a million miles away from the topic. I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you wrote your PhD thesis on the connection between relationships with weight and shape and trans experiences. And I would love to hear more about that, please. Okay, let's see if I can. I've had enough practice at this now that I should be able to describe it in ways that are um, that can that can be followed. <laughs> it took a while, so um, yeah. So that was I finished. Um, I finished my thesis, my PhD last year, the end of last year, which was a long. Um, it was a long process. <laughs> um, but also really cool to, like the conversations I had as part of it were really um, amazing, very grateful to have those. Right. Um, and the reason for doing it was um, partly personal 
so having had difficulties in my early 20s around um around body image and and kind of engaging um some more kind of harmful behaviors around food at the time and then um recovering from that through uh through reading a lot about it to understand like why did it feel the way it felt and why did that feel like something that would be a solution like why 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 did that feel that way so powerfully and having just taught you know having chats um just informally with other people um about it and the overwhelming response being a kind of almost intuitive recognition in a way that was interesting to me um in a lot of those conversations like oh well yeah obviously I was like okay that's like interesting like why 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 would it be obvious necessarily um so it was partly that and then looking for um other research that had already been done um and finding that so there were a lot of studies that were kind of large scale asking you know um standard sets of questions about behaviors that people had um had engaged in in like the past month last year um and then comparing those and saying oh you know there's a heightened level of um restricted eating or you know xyz or um trans and gender diverse people within this sample so saying like obviously something is going on but then where where the the studies were trying to or were offering explanations um finding that often those were very limited and very over simplistic so so a lot of the time you know it, it would be in lots of words and written in a particular way but essentially the conclusion would be like well trans people hate their bodies so obviously like they're more likely to feel distressed about them and have disordered eating and feeling like that was just very far away from <laughs> you know it, it, like instinctively how i yeah just feeling like that doesn't seem right mm. <laughs> and because it's very fixing um it's very kind of like defining transness in terms of in terms of this stuff and people have been you know saying that that's wrong and, and bullshit for various reasons for for a long time um so so basically like um wanting to to recognize like point out that that dysphoria is important and it is you know we need to understand that much better than we currently do in terms of and the fact that it looks different for different people and it looks different in different settings and that it you know dysphoria isn't a thing that exists in a vacuum it right. happens you know, mm -hmm. in our in the way that we're positioned and in how other people um readers um and that's that's changing all the time so the the point of the phd was to to interview um trans and and gender diverse people um and explore in those interviews how they felt about weight and shape and how they described things that they did that were related to weight and shape with the hope of um exploring like both 
So things that were painful. So some people would talk about disordered eating or things that they they um, understood as disordered eating as part of that, but also um, things that were like pleasurable or joyful or healing. So which was kind of the the reason for for framing it in terms of relationships with weight and shape as opposed to disordered eating, which um, other people have have focused more on disordered eating, and that's, that's still mm-hmm. very useful. But that was kind of the reason for doing that. Um, and then the the outcomes from the interviews basically were that um, that essentially weight and shape are complicated <laughs> big finding um, wow yeah but much more complicated i guess much more complicated than just um this group of people by definition um hate their bodies and that leads to mm. xyz saying that you know how how people felt about weight and shape varied depending on um what else was going on and then so within that Put drawing attention to um, interpersonal things, so weight and shape, feeling sometimes like a way. If you can, if you can change that or do things for people who were able to um, to consciously change the weight and shape of their body, that it was a way to try to, um, in some situations influence how other people would then see and receive them as a as an accessible thing about the body um, and then also in terms of care pathways and accessing gender affirming care so there'd been some other research that was saying like you know when people are in distress and then they access um, interventions that they need care that they need that then the distress is alleviated and you know disordered eating symptoms things that are classed in that way are um, alleviated but in the interviews that I was having there was this very clear distinction between um, care and treatment which for people who were seeking it you know that was um, associated with um, uh, kind of relief in some cases but also the you know having um, control over the choices that you make about your own body and that's also tied up very much with with weight and shape in a lot of kind of more eating disorder literature things around kind of having control over your own body um but that was very distinct from the experience of trying to access that care so people's experiences of navigating care pathways and the way that gender affirming care is structured um in the UK specifically at the moment, that that was in various different ways a source of harm. Sometimes it was very directly related to weight and shape. So for some people that was um, coming up, you know, coming up very hard against um, BMI thresholds for treatment. So having access withheld um on the you know on the basis of kind of weight loss requirements um and for other people it was having being in in a in a in a clinical setting and having judgments made about your body and your appearance and your gender presentation in a situation where you're not you're not in a position of power to challenge that and that then afterwards a way of coping with 
that or a way of coping with really long waiting lists was to turn to waiting shape related behaviors as something that people could you know uh, could have immediate access to that they were like this is something that, that i have power over um so it's almost like counter to that narrative that transness causes body related uh, behaviors it's actually transphobia in this case that's causing body related um behaviors which is yeah just turning the thing upside down really and like making this connection between uh different forms of body oppressions and being like yeah there is a connection but it's not the connection that you were seeing <laughs> or like trying to like yeah there's like just a certain story that they're trying to tell or like two things that are very pathologized and like both treated really badly um in a way it makes sense that they would become interrelated and yeah that the solutions might be the same of like self-determination autonomy control kind of makes sense really yeah that that was that was a really good way <laughs> of summing it up yes um yeah because if you if if you frame it in one way, if you frame it as this way, that there's this group of people and they are the way they are and it's fixed and we can define that and then it links in this very simplistic way, then that all fits within the way that things currently work. So what it points to, I mean, not to be, you know, to get cynical about it, but then the it, it, clinicians working within current structures can say, like, we need more resources for screening people for eating disorders or we need more resources for da, 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 when actually the 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 bigger source of harm might be having to navigate those structures in the first place right. um as opposed to like the solution is in just funneling people more mm. you know in a way if anything with more scrutiny on on what they're doing on how that you know and it which and then from my perspective and what hopefully and I can, you know, use this to argue a bit, is that that's, that's completely the opposite of what people need. You know, it's more, more scrutiny, more like, what are you mm. doing? More, more like, fill out, this, fill out this questionnaire in order to access, you know, gender-affirming care. Mm. Um, and we'll, like, we'll, we will determine if your relationship with your body is in health or whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, and... Um, Whereas if you yeah if you look at it from from the other way then you have to like you have to you know tackle like fatphobic um, dogma in healthcare and you know change um, the ways that that works structurally you have to invest in in hugely transforming the way that gender affirming care is delivered and that's a much less you know people are much less inclined to do that but There's that's not the thing for that no. let's like redesign the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> but i think it's just it's it's but it's it's trying to argue that like look you can do you know you, you cannot want to do that all that you like but the longer that you don't do it the longer these kind of like, like oh baffling inequality you know just you know just you, know, you know elevated levels of whatever that that will just persist until those until these more fundamental things are um are addressed you, you know you can try to do it the other way but you you're you know essentially just being like i don't know insisting that 
whatever's being presented as the easy fix like is categorically not going to work um it's interesting isn't it how I think for a lot of us, that just seems super intuitive, as you were using that word, and and super logical that these things will be connected. That people's relationship to their bodies are complex. That we're all over the map. Um, that yeah, fundamental oppression is going to be probably a very big factor in that, and those things are also interconnected. For us, I think it just seems really clear, and it's just. Yeah, I'm always surprised when people are like, no, it's this like other very weird and very simplistic thing. And then they're just very baffled that it doesn't work. Um, and I remember there was something about, um, some, there was like this huge, very expensive research project on by like non-sex workers on sex work. Um, and they discovered after many years of investing, I don't know how much money, that sex workers did better when sex work wasn't criminalized. And we're in a room of sex workers. We're like, wow, <laughs> who could have imagined such a thing? <laughs> I, I wish you'd given us those 10 million, whatever. Um, it's like, it just, yeah, sometimes it's actually not about fixing the thing. And it's just kind of like somebody's getting an advantage from that system in a way. It's like they don't actually want to challenge the power or something. And in that case, yeah, sometimes I'm confused also just by like, yeah, big academic projects that prove something that like was really clear, which is not like your PhD, because of course it's like, it's, you know, I think there, there are different ways of doing it where you're actually like, okay, this is an analysis and like own voices. Like let's actually hear some of those voices for a while um, because the analysis is going to be different to the BMI index operating doctor um, who just never thought about those things and doesn't have that information. Um, but on that, I'm curious, like, what happens once you've written a PhD? Because I remember it was a huge part of your life. I feel like it probably still is. Um, is it something, and I'm, I've asked you this before, but I, I'm still very bad with academic things, like the paper itself and the things you've written, that's something that people can now access and it can be like used in examples and in like academic discourse and things. Um, yeah, I'm curious, like how how that gets back to, for example, some of the people you were interviewing, or like how does that come back to, for example, the trans community, um, so that we can kind of use it and reference it ourselves if we're not like in the academic circles. Yeah. Um. So I, I mean, I think there's a part of this which is that I'm still figuring out how best to do that to an extent so there's the thesis which is kind of it's you know googleable and it's can just be downloaded as a pdf it's very long so i don't know you know um <laughs> i don't know that people will be flocking to do that but um and then there's on a on a on an academic side of things there's a kind of usually what people will do which i'm kind of in the process of working on at the moment is they will take one or two chapters and turn those into um articles to submit to journals and right. then and then that can give things the weight of you know someone being like oh there's this study in blah 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 um so it for that case it's kind of me doing i guess a better job at some point of writing out essentially like this is what the article says and this is the citation because that's how people use articles anyway people don't mm, right. say like it's i mean it's all very weird and i mean i kind of like you were saying before like that that my 
that my work isn't necessarily like that. And I'm not sure that it isn't like that. And I think that's, I think I'm not sure that any of academia isn't, isn't a bit like that because it feels weird to do it and be like, because to me, the things that I'm saying, you, those are things that would come out of just a, a conversation between trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, and which essentially is what it was. It's just written up mm. in a way and right. you know, cited in like a million different things. And that feels, that does feel weird. And I think is one of the reasons why throughout it, it felt, I, for myself, I needed to be doing other things that were doing, that, you know, that, that were, that the, the effect of them was happening now. <laughs> as opposed to because with with academic stuff you're you're kind of trying to to add stuff to a type that will over time become the the not the you know the, the the accepted standard um but that is slow and and feels very it feels frustrating in that way of like if people would just listen if people just listened and then actually did things based on what all you know all different kinds of communities what they're just saying mm. like you didn't have to try to funnel that through all these different stupid channels you know in ways that hold weight in different settings like mm-hmm. it so so given that that's the case doing doing things um around around that work has felt really important the whole way through. I think once the once there are some kind of journal article type things to direct to, then um, then it will. I don't know. It'll be me thinking about ways of equipping people to use that in a way that, for you know, on a it's kind of related, but it doesn't draw on my own research so much. But for people I know, looking up. Um, you know, published studies around, you know, um, the risks involved with gender-affirming surgeries of different kinds for people with higher BMIs, which essentially don't exist, but saying like, look, there's mm-hmm. this like multi-center thing, there's this this study, this study. So here's like a, a, a condensed version of what the study says and sending that to people in the hope that if they go into a consultation with a surgeon, um, that that they're able to say, you know, there is no evidence, there's no evidence for the risks of this. Right. And that doesn't secure a good outcome necessarily. It's another tool and it's another um, thing to be, yeah, to kind of support someone in that situation. I mean, I, I also really think that out of those conversations that you've been having and this one and all of the... Um, you know, I think that there's like, it's very focused on this outcome of like writing a paper um, and what happens to that in, in kind of academic worlds. But I can imagine that those conversations you had were super fruitful. And I can imagine that like those connections that happen, that you're putting these two things on the table that are not often connected in like, I don't know, um, smart and radical ways, let's say, as you were saying, like the usual connection of these two things is like very problematic. Um I yeah somehow I just feel like those conversations 
can create, and often this is actually how it works in marginal communities, it will be some kind of survival guide for people who are in, affected by both of these things. And how do you navigate the medical complex? How do you, like, yeah, kind of exactly have things to reference when you're like facing the doctor and you're like wow actually there's a paper here um and kind of yeah use those as kind of tools and i think it's just so often really informal those things like like i'm thinking of like a survival guide like it doesn't actually have to be like a zine or a website it's just like that's just what we're doing all the time we're just constantly giving each other information and passing on ideas and supporting each other and just like oh yeah this is how you navigate this terrible thing that we have to navigate as as marginal people and yeah, so I, I can definitely see it just being like part of that kind of ongoing process where we're all just finding informal ways to support each other. And also you've created this tool that people can literally use, um, yeah, in specific situations, which I don't know, sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a helpful question because I'm like, oh, maybe I guess part of that, because I have this this like general idea about producing some kind of, you know, accessible maybe illustrated, partly illustrated, you know, mm. like a graphic layout um, of the findings. And now I'm thinking, oh, maybe it'd be cool to have in there that kind of summary of like, if you're, if you're experiencing this, you know, even if they won't listen to you, just know that there, there is no, you know, there is no mm. evidence base for your care being withheld in this way. Um, mm. And like, it says so, yeah, here and here. Right. Um, and that would be so useful, I think. And it's like you have, like, inside knowledge as well of, like, what people are talking about in outside of trans communities and, like, cis gatekeeping communities or, like, yeah, the, the doctor with the BMI brain or something. It's like there's kind of have, like, a perspective on that that I think could be super useful for people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the, it's, um, I'm definitely gonna sorry like, to be creating more projects for you. I don't no, no, <laughs> well, no, because this is like a back burner one, but um, but uh, because it's not, it's not kind of covered in my my regular job at the moment, so it's just kind of working out, um, you know, blocking out time at some point to just kind of get it done. Um, but think it's useful to think through what how to make things usable basically because there, there there's there is like there's the academic papers are given like a specific kind of weight in institutions mm. and especially i mean even just using language like you know evidence-based and stuff like that it has it links into how those things work and the things that are considered legitimate you know um and so, and 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 they're very often behind a, a, like a you know a paywall and stuff for for people to access. But most you know in in most cases, you don't need to you don't need to access and read the entire article. You just need to be you know you need you know you need the the author names and the year because in conversation like that then. It sounds to people like, oh, you know, this is a, this is a thing, and then to to be able to say, like, essentially, what they're saying is, there's no there's no evidence for this thing that you're doing. Um, but that's that's not like, I mean, it's literally inaccessible, but also like how to use that kind of stuff 
is very inaccessible. Mm, I think it is, yeah, I think for me, like growing up, academia seemed like a very kind of distant world. I still have some like fear of it. I'm still kind of like, oh, what is a PhD? Um, or yeah, what a what a, what is all that about? And I think there is there's a certain prestige to like a paper that's been published. Um, I also have it with novels. Like sometimes you know being published is somehow better than not being published. It doesn't mean actually anything about what the book is. Fifty Shades of Grey was published. That doesn't mean anything. Um, very published, and yeah, somehow there is these kind of arbitrary decisions of like this thing is this and therefore it has more prestige and it's more important and sometimes the most important stories are the ones that just people tell each other i don't know over a cup of tea and sometimes the most important conversations are yeah people sitting on a sofa having a chat about something and those are the ones that maybe save lives and there's something about kind of taking away that prestige but then also there's as i understand that because there's so much rigor and so much like accuracy and precision and like checking things in, for example, writing a PhD, I feel like what you've created is something so precise and um, evidence-based, uh, reclaiming the term a little bit. I feel like, therefore, like if that can be made accessible to people, it's so useful. I feel like there's something like really precise. It's not just like, oh yeah, well, I had this thing and I kind of imagine this thing might be true or something, which is like basically how I'm always like living life. It's like, no, there's a real thing here. And at least for the scientific part of me, like that's true, right? It's not just like, hmm, I feel like birds are doing this thing. It's like, well, there's a paper that says something about that. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe that both of those things are true, but I think it is like a really important part of, yeah, helping people survive and navigate things is like it's it's interesting because i think I've, I've always perceived you as being kind of a little bit in between both of those worlds of like in community activism and particularly like invisible activism that like nobody really kind of notices and like working really hard with super marginal people and writing papers about things and somehow bringing those two worlds together and i feel like that's just so important because so often academics aren't particularly showing up for marginal communities or doing a thing and sometimes people are really doing things but like don't have access to that or just aren't interested in the precision um, and the rigor and I feel like having one foot in both of those worlds is a really powerful um, gift to the community. Oh I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> for me it's it's funny because yeah um, it probably isn't so common but I would like it really feels I feel like I couldn't Kind of like I was saying before, I, I I feel like I can't do one without the other. But then mm. it does it does feel beneficial. Like I mm. don't. I yeah. I'm like so wary of uh, of the kind of disappearing off into the ether thing of, of academia. Sometimes just losing a sense, you know, of what it is that it's supposed to be doing. Um, that 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 feels like crucial in a way to stay grounded in like what's really happening and what people need. Yeah, so that I don't ever, so that I don't in doing in doing the more in doing the more academic work as well, that I don't ever lose a sense of like, what is this? What is this for? Mm. Like, and it, that might be in a really long term way. But it's still, you know, 
it, it still feels grounded in something mm. like it, it should still be be contributing to something yeah, I sometimes have a similar kind of tension or dilemma or something between writing and just spending a lot of hours in a happy little fictional world and then like doing an actual thing. <laughs> um, and a little bit of a balance is really helpful because then those two things feed into each other. It definitely, yeah, it also keeps me grounded and real um, and also like inspired and uplifted because I just need both of those things to keep going, I think. <laughs> Well, and other people do too. I mean, it's the it's just the other way around of what you were saying to me, you know. But then though that those worlds become sustaining to other people as well. Mm. Like that is that is well su- sustaining and also sources of of um, different ways of thinking about you know what do you want to do, like what what things do you want to work towards contribute to that other people are working towards like how do you want to be situated you know where do you want to be in all of that stuff um and be inhabiting that kind of fictional world helps you know it helps it helps people to 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 work those things out i think Mm. yeah i agree (laughs) um so are there any like groups or organizations or projects that you'd like to shout out yes (laughs) great i'm i'm excited to talk about some of these because um i don't know i i just i mean that's kind of like i was saying before about connecting with maybe feeling more less uh, more more kind of alienated from um the more kind of mainstream spaces and scenes and stuff, but at the same time making these connections, which are places where I feel genuine, like pride and um, and hope and things. Um, that that's you know being in in trying to be in in collaboration and stuff and connection with other groups is a real source of that as well. That feeling. Um, so first of all. Um, who I mentioned earlier would be Bent Bars, who, um, who've been doing what they've been doing for quite a while now. I think it's, I think it's 10 plus years. Hopefully I'm not wrong about that, but I know they've been around for, you know, definitely a lot longer than we have. Um, and who are a pen pal project, which is specifically focused on LGBTQ plus people inside. So linking people up with um, pen pals on the outside. Um, so that's most of what they do and they've also done some really cool they've produced some really amazing resources so they did a series of they produced a series of fact sheets about um, trans people inside and specifically trans women inside and trans feminine people inside to kind of counteract a lot of you know media um, scaremongering and um, and misinformation basically really amazing that's amazing um, and they've also worked with the Prisoners Advice Service to produce specific rights guides. So there's a kind of mm. an LGB rights guide, and then there's a trans prison specific rights guide. Mm. And those are also, you know, they're a great, we send a lot of those in, just a really amazing resource to be able to send. So event bars do a lot of really cool stuff. Um, a newer group um, who they've set up in the past year 
um, is the Nejma Collective, who are a collective of um, Muslim um, activists um, who are supporting Muslim people inside specifically. Um, and they're, so over the past year, they ran a, well, towards the start of the year, they ran a fundraiser, managed to raise a bunch of money, which was great. And they're starting off at the moment by um, facilitating grants for people. Um, and then that's gonna be the, um, the kind of foundation on which they're gonna just build communications and work, find out like what people's most pressing needs are and, um, and organize around that, which is, I mean, it's been really cool to see to see that group develop. And we had a lot of contact early on because they basically saying like, this is how we do things. I think at first they were planning to be more of a, a books project specifically, but they're, you know, approaching it a bit more uh, in a bit of a different way, which also for us, it's really useful and interesting as well to look, to see that, you know, from, from outside and be like, okay, like that's, like that's a different way of approaching that. Like, and maybe they're going to get a, a, you know, more of a sense of what people's priorities are on the inside. And maybe there's a way in which we can be doing that as well that we aren't currently doing. You know, the books are kind of the the thing through which we um, make contact and then hopefully um, build some sense of connection. And then there's kind of the newsletter side of things. But maybe we can be doing, you know, maybe we can be doing parts of that differently. So. Um, so they're really cool. Very excited to see what they go on to do. Um, a group that's local to Manchester um, is Kids of Colour, um, which has been running for a while now. Um, and they usually, it's kind of youth focused, obviously, as the name suggests. And they've campaigned around various different things over the years. So they did a lot of work with young people experiencing racism at school or college. Uh, and then there was a plan in Manchester to introduce um, police officers into schools and they campaigned around that and managed to get it reversed as a council decision. Um, wow. And the campaign kind of, it, you know, it went beyond Manchester as well. It became it was very influential, really high impact. Um, and just recently they've been supporting um, a group of 10 young black men who've been um, convicted under a kind of racist, um, it's not mm. technically joint enterprise, but it's under um, a kind of conspiracy charge. So mm. it's, it's linked to joint enterprise in the sense of using, you know, hugely inadequate um, evidence, but presenting a kind of racist gang narrative in order to, to kind of convict this whole, whole group of young men so they covered the trial very intensively and then um in the month since they've been doing just loads of organizing work around supporting the young men but also um like they're running a meeting in the next couple of months around coming up with you know collective community-based responses to um serious youth violence that are kind of healing centered and trauma-informed and um yeah just a, a really really amazing group um, and then uh, we also want to shout out um, CAPE, which is Community Action and Prison Expansion. Um, mm -hmm. And they do just loads and loads of, um, of 
direct action. So they set up, I mean, it's incredible really the way it's set up for people. So letter writing campaigns, um, and which are very often grounded in providing direct support to specific people. Um, and then those form the foundation um, for letter campaigns and, um, and then also organizing to stop um, expansion of prisons, which is kind of a really big thing happening in the UK at the moment, so expansion and expanding existing prisons and also building new ones. Um, so they, they kind of feed into and, um, and support grassroots campaigns against that. Um, they just do, do loads. So we, we're constantly signposting people to those actions um, on social media and stuff, get as many people as possible to take part. And then my final, excuse me, my final group of project is um, the Solidarity Property, which um, you're already aware of. Um, <laughs> um, and um, Nicole, who runs that, does more stuff than I can remember off the top of my head, but <laughs> a lot of it includes Same. <laughs> um, direct prison support, lots of prison visits, and um, and also has written, um, so we've sent multiple, like tens of, of just stacks and stacks of her books at this point to to people inside um, some mm. prisons herbal and um, overcoming burnout and mm. um, the medicinal herb coloring book as well, right. um, which are coming from a place of um, lived experience and just are, are just invaluable in sending to people. Um, and then there's you know there's loads of other stuff, international solidarity stuff and things like that. But, but loads of of really incredible direct work um and i'm gonna stop there because i <laughs> love that but yeah and like talking talking about all these groups is, is just really amazing it makes me feel like yeah like i was saying before like a sense of like real hope or things even though it's incredibly difficult and all the people involved you know it's very it's it's very traumatic for um for the people involved in various different ways um but just the the things that people think to do and then just do like uh, just makes me feel oh felix thank you so much and thank you this was so lovely <laughs>